Good. <clears throat> I want to invite you to open up 2 Kings. Chapter 8 is where we'll start. Hopefully we'll do 8 and 9 tonight. We'll see what the Lord requires of us. <laughs> As we come tonight to this section of Scripture and see in... Uh, we're, we're going to see something that God promised was coming way back with Elijah. So let me remind you, way back when Elijah had his battle with uh, the high priest of Baal, if you remember, <coughs> God, uh, God led him to have him build two altars. One altar was to the god Baal. And the priests of Baal, 400 of them, gathered around that altar and called out, for fire to come from heaven to prove that Baal was true God. And they danced and they sang and they did their thing, but no fire came. Elijah went over to his altar and dug a trench around it. They're right down near the, this, this river that runs down through the Jezreel Valley. So they go down and they, they gathered up seven pitchers full of water and they pour the water on top of the sacrifice on the wood, so that it filled the trench around it. Everything soaked. And Elijah prayed. And the fire came. Consumed the sacrifice, the, 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 the water, the wood, the stones, the dirt, all gone. Poof. God took it all. That day, in the midst of all of Israel... All of the northern kingdom, who was steeped in Baal worship, God proved himself real, more real than any other God that they were serving. The Lord led Elijah to, to kill the priests of Baal who were leading God's people into false worship. So he went down, and I'm sure he had help, 400 priests of Baal. I'm sure they didn't just line up and say, okay. So... These 400 priests, they, they get killed. And the people are celebrating there's a true God. Man, he proved himself. Fire came out of heaven. I mean, what, what better test? And, and, and Ahab's headed back toward Jezebel. And the Bible says that, that Elijah outran the chariot. He got there first. And Jezebel, even, even having heard the truth, said to Elijah, May God do so also to me, and more also, if by this time tomorrow you're not a dead man. And Elijah was so blown away that in the face of absolute and complete proof that God was real and that Baal was false, to see that kind of rejection it just robbed him of everything he had in him left to fight. So the Bible says he turned around and ran. He ran until he couldn't run no more. And the angel came and ministered to him, gave him some bread. And he rose on that bread and ran 40 days on that bread. And he finds himself way down in the backside of the desert. And he crawls into a little cave. And he says, God, kill me. Forget it. I'm done. I quit. I give up. They just don't want to get it. And the Lord whispered to Elijah, Elijah, 
What are you doing here? Elijah says, oh, I, I have been faithful. I alone have stood against all these priests of Baal. Nobody was with me. He gets a, a little poor pitiful me thing going. And so the Bible tells us that God showed him. God showed him his incredible judgments. Come before him, you see a mighty fire. But the Bible says... God wasn't in the fire and a mighty wind. But the Bible says God wasn't in the mighty wind. And then a giant earthquake. But the Bible says God wasn't in the earthquake. And then in the gentle silence, God whispered again, Elijah, what are you doing here? Commissions Elijah to anoint Three swords of God's judgment that will come. And each of those judgments that would come are going to bring, they're going to announce the end of God's long suffering. They're going to announce the end of God's patience as he waits for man to repent. That, that time's going to be over. <laughs> it's going to be done. He says, I want you to go to Syria. And anoint Hazael. So I want you to go and anoint Jehu. And I want you to go and anoint Elisha. So Elijah gets up. And immediately we see him walk and anoint Elisha. But the other two aren't anointed. And Elijah's taken up in a fiery chariot. So... That job is left to Elisha to finish what God had laid out for Elijah to do. So often we, in our impatience, maybe in our frustration as we watch maybe the wicked prosper and people seem to get away with things or whatever, we long for the judgment of God. Unless you have actually gone through the judgment of God, then you don't long for that anymore. Then you just want mercy. And Second Kings 8 and 9, that's, that's the judgment of God. The sword of Jehu, the sword of Hazael, it's going to come. Going to destroy lives. Kill men and women and children. Judgment for a nation... Is caught in Baal worship. But the promise of God is that after that, they'll be cured. So we see in, in 2 Kings chapter 8, Elisha begin to take up that, that call to fulfill, to finish what Elisha or what Elijah was supposed to start. We find ourselves coming close to the end of the reign of Jehoram. And in chapter 8, the first uh, roughly six verses, we look back in time. <clears throat> the first six verses of chapter 8 occur before chapter 5. Elisha comes to the Shunammite woman, it says in verse 1. And Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, 
you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So a lot of things that, that we need to grasp from this, and hopefully we can see them. Elisha, who raised the Shunammite woman from the dead, who gave the promise of God that she would have a child when she was barren, when that child had an aneurysm, you remember, uh, Elisha came and, and brought that child back to life, returned him to his mother. Now he comes to her and he says to her, a famine is coming, seven year famine, you need to leave. I find this interesting because prior to this, when famine was coming, he would say, Elijah actually speaking to the widow, um, he comes to her and says, if you'll share with me what you have, what you have will never run out. God will sustain you all the way through this famine, three and a half years. And miraculously, God sustained all that she had. When she shared what she had, God sustained it. And she passed through that period of famine. But now, God sends his messenger to the Shunammite woman, who, by the way, is a Gentile. She's not a Jew. And he says to her, famine's coming. God's judgment. Go. Go someplace else. God's not going to miraculously deliver. God is saying, go. Go someplace where you're going to be okay. Now, she's a wealthy woman, we know, from earlier scriptures. She's got a big plot of land, a nice big house. But the Bible says, So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. She went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines for seven years. <clears throat> so she leaves during the famine and she goes into the land of the Philistines as the Lord had told her, go someplace where you're going to be able to stay. But listen to how it would work in the land in those days. See, the right to own land hinged on the husband. A wife didn't have a right to own land. You may remember when the divvying up of the promised land was coming, there were three daughters who came to Moses who's had... Their father had died and there were no husbands. And they said, we're not going to get anything. Will you give us some of the land? And Moses makes a, a, a place in, within the law for that to be allowed so that the name of their father doesn't go without inheritance and that is passed on then from them down to the, the children, the boys that they have as they, as they move forward. Well, when she leaves, she abandons the land. What would happen is that land would go into the charge of the king. And the king would use the fields and he would bring forth crops and he would utilize the land. And then should a kinsman redeemer or someone who is able to redeem the land come back, which would be a man. You remember the story of Ruth and Naomi, right? Naomi couldn't just come get her own land. She needed a kinsman redeemer to purchase it for her. The whole point of that story is to say, you and I don't have the right to do anything without a kinsman redeemer. We need, we need our savior. Jesus Christ becomes a picture of the kinsman redeemer. And we, every one of us, man, woman, and child, are called who? The bride of Christ. We're just like Ruth. Gentile, bride-to-be of the kinsman redeemer. So this Shunammite woman, she's gone away. Her land is forfeit. In verse 3 it says, It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. <coughs> All that land is with the king. Now here's what we do know about this king. He's not been a rather good king. 
He's really not following the precepts of the Lord, doesn't really care about any of those things. So the idea that this king would be predisposed to help this woman uh, is crazy. He, there's, there's no reason for him to want to do that. Beside the fact that she's not a Jew, she's uh, coming to this place, not, there's not going to be much of a chance that she's going to receive anything from the king. But look what happens. It says in verse 4, now, as she's coming to the king, look at verse 4, she's coming into the king, then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Listen, it just so happens, as the woman is coming in to see the king, that the servant of Elisha, Gehazi, is visiting with the king, and the king is asking him to tell him some of the stories of the miracles that Elisha has done. So as she's coming, there sits the king talking to Gehazi about the miracles that Elisha has done. Look at the story that Gehazi tells her. <clears throat> now it happened, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. What are the odds that on the day that she goes to receive back and ask the king for her land, that the servant of Elisha just happens to be with the king? And the king just happens to be asking about the stories of Elisha. And Gehazi just happens to tell the story of, of Elisha raising this young man to life as they walk in. What's the odds of that? Pretty remote? Pretty remote. We, here's what we see. This woman receives the word of God. The word of God that says, I'm not going to deliver you. I'm not going to supernaturally do any miracles. You need to get up and leave. So she is obedient to what the Word of God tells her to do. She's obedient even though it costs her her house and her land. She's obedient. She walks away. Seven years later, she comes back. And what do we see? We see God giving her back all the stuff that she lost in her obedience to Him. Everything she lost, the king's going to give her and more. In fact, the Scripture goes on to tell us, as he tells her that, it says, when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. Give her back everything that that land has produced the seven years she's been gone. See, God's not a debtor to any man. And when we make the choice to walk in obedience to him, what is it that Jesus said? No man has lost father, mother, brother, sister, lands following me that won't receive more in this life, in eternal life, in the life to come. God promises that those things we give up for him, those things that we think are so costly, those relationships maybe that God's calling you to, to walk out of, or, or you know the different things that the Lord may say, hey, you know, this isn't good for you. 
you need to leave. You need to walk out of this situation. You may say, oh, that's going to ruin me. I'm going to lose everything if I do that. That's what happened to her. It was more important to her to obey the word of God than it was for her to have all her stuff. Isn't that exactly what, what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler? Isn't that what he was saying to him? When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do? And Jesus said, well, you know what the, what the word says. Fulfill the law. Oh, all these things I've done since my youth. Oh, you're delusional. I didn't know that until just now. All these things I've done. Well, one more thing you lack, Jesus said. Sell everything you have. Give up all your possessions. Give what you make from the sale to the poor. Leave it all. Come and follow me. And the Bible says he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. What stuff is holding us back? You know, when we study history, I'm always kind of... Uh, um, I don't know, blown away by the events of the Holocaust. I don't know if you guys ever are, but, but I'm always kind of blown away. And I'm blown away by the simple concept that things kept gradually getting worse and worse. And at what point do you not just say, I need to get out of here. This is going south fast. But so many stayed because they had big houses and they were doctors or they were jewelers or they were watch or clockmen or whatever you call those guys they had all this stuff and they stayed and they stayed until all that stuff was taken away and then more than that their families their children all of it gone they were clinging to their things if there is an example in scripture of us as believers in this day and age it is the rich young ruler there's no country as rich as us there's no i don't care how poor you think you are if you're not on a dirt floor you're doing pretty good if you got any heat any food you got a car i went to russia and the majority of people don't have a car. The majority of people have no transportation. Do you know how they get where they need to go? They walk. And that's, that's not what I would call a third world country, by the way. Now, maybe other people would, but I wouldn't call them third world. There's a lot of places worse than that. But is there things within our possession? If the Lord came to you and I and he said to me, Jackie, leave everything you got, leave it all behind, walk away from it, and go to a place that I'm going to show you, um, come and follow me. What is it that I wouldn't leave? What couldn't we lay down? What couldn't we do without? We need to be in the place where we'd say, I'd leave it all. I'd let it go. I'd even let Rusty have my sig. I'd, I'd leave it all behind. And that's what I want my heart to be. And that's what we need our heart to be. And when we do, God's going to take care of us. 
We think it's going to be worse when we get back, but it's not. The Lord takes care of His own. God knows how to do that. And I'm blown away, too, at the, at the random occurrence that it just so happens <coughs> that Gehazi's there. You know, hold your place here. Turn to the right a long ways to Acts 23. In Acts 23, you, you, we read another story in the New Testament where God does, well, something I think is pretty similar to what we see the Lord doing here. In Acts 23, we have Paul. Paul, who's, who's moving forward with the Lord. He's doing uh, what, he, what God has called him to. He has already stated in, uh, in Acts chapter 20 that no matter what he has to lose, he's willing to lose everything to move on with God, to do what God wants him to do. And he finds himself imprisoned, and he finds himself trying to, to, to give an answer for all the things that have happened. And before we go too far, look at 23 verse 11. Because here, this tells me Paul get bummed too. And he look at his circumstance and he think, man, this may be the end. He's coming up to it. And the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, he's not in Rome yet. He's in chains and he's on his way. It says in verse 12, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now there was more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and the elders, and they said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he gets here. Look at verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush... He went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now what are the odds that when these 40 guys are putting their plan together, that they happen to do it within earshot of Paul's nephew? But that's the way it works out. See, God had promised Paul he was going to make it to Rome. And God knows how to deliver we still have to be willing then to be obedient. See, Paul was willing to be obedient and go to Jerusalem, even though Agabus stood before him, bound his hands and feet, and he said, this is what's going to happen to the man whose belt I have used. And all the people around Paul said, no, don't go. The, God's warning you not to go. No, God wasn't warning him not to go. God was telling him what it was going to cost him to serve him. You remember God did that in Acts chapter 9? You remember that the Lord said to Ananias, I will show him all the things he will what? Suffer for my name's sake. I'm going to show him. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure Paul knows what he's getting into before he gets there. That was a deal that God made with Paul. So Agabus is just telling him, when you go, you're going to get arrested, you're going to be in chains, you're going to go to Rome. And all the Ephesians come around him and they say, No, no, this is terrible. Don't go. Stay with us. Don't go. It's going to take too much. It's going to cost too much. And Paul said, What are you trying to do to me? You're killing me. Trying to stop me? Don't you know? 
Don't you know that I am ready to spend and be spent? Don't you know that I am more than willing to give my life, everything, to go and do what God's asking me to do? He said, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy. I'm going to finish what God's asked me to do. Saeed, he knew. On Facebook, before he ever went to Iran, he, he had posted, I'm going back to Iran. We're going to build an orphanage. The government has said it's okay. But I know once I get over there, anything can happen. So pray for me. But I'm going anyway. Because the love of Christ compels him to go. None of these things move me. Tortured every day since. Unless a miracle happens, probably won't be long. And there will be a body coming home. But he went anyway. He went. All around the world today, there are stories, similar stories of God's people being willing to forsake all. What did Saeed lose to go? If the Lord takes his life, he's lost all the time he would have had with his kids, his house, his wife, all of it. But if you could ask him... He would use the same words of Paul. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy. The challenge for us is to have that same attitude. When the Word of God directs us, we have much simpler things that God's Word calls us to do that, that stop us. We stop. We're, we, we, we don't move forward because I don't want to obey this thing Whatever this thing is, because it's going to cost me something. Pay it. Pay it. Because the rest of the story in 2 Kings 8 and 9 is all about judgment. People dying. Before God's judgment comes, you know that he's reaching out in a period of grace, right? Every time. Look through the Old Testament. Every time before his judgment comes, God has his man on the scene. Elijah, Elisha, Gehazi, the other servants, the school of the prophets. And what are they doing? Bringing forth the word of God, reaching out. Be obedient to what God's asking before the judgment comes. We find ourselves in the same place. God's asking of us. Just simple obedience. We've got to start. Before you're ready to go to Iran and die, you got to be willing to be obedient where you are. To the word of God, as God has revealed to your heart, there are things in each of us, there are issues within our life that God's saying, you need to get this right. And we need to be willing to do that no matter what it costs. So it costs something. God will take care of you, just like he took care of this woman. The scripture tells in verse 7, So Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Haziel, 
Take a present in your hand, and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of, of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel went to meet him, and took a present with him, of every good thing of Damascus, forty camel loads. By the way, that's quite a bit. Sounds like a pretty good present. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Now, <clears throat> I don't know if this boggles your mind. This boggles my mind. Because these are enemies, um, Syria and Israel. And Elisha <laughs> just delivered the whole army in, uh, twice and saved Israel twice by the, by the word of God delivering the people, and now he happens to be in Damascus because, well, he's going to announce uh, the reign of Hazael. And as he finds himself in that place, the king says, hey, go ask him if I'm going to make it or not. Go tell him to, to ask the Lord, Yahweh. Ask him if I'm going to make it. So Hazael comes and he meets him. And he says, will the king recover? So Elisha in verse 10 said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Now that seems kind of confusing, doesn't it? Yeah, go tell him he's going to recover, but the Lord's told me he's going to die. Well, why should I tell him he's going to recover? Oh. Haziel, that's the part you don't understand. See? Without you, the king would live. He would survive the illness. But because of you, the king's going to die. Well, look what he says. He goes on to explain what he's talking about. He says in verse 11, He set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. So Elisha's looking at Hazael, and God's showing him what Hazael's going to do, and, and Elisha just weeps. And Hazael said, Why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with a sword. You will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Hazael said, well, What is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me you would surely recover. It happened on the next day. He took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his place. Hazael, the hand of, uh, 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 a hand of judgment that God is going to use in Syria to judge the nation of Israel. And so <clears throat> he comes to power and Elisha explains how that's going to happen. He's going to kill the king. The king would get better. But he's not, because before he can get better, Hazael is going to kill him. In 842 B.C., Hazael took control of Syria. And some archaeological digs, some things that they have found, describe Hazael as a, a son of nobody. Hazael the king, the son of nobody. Which titles him in Syria as a usurper. Someone who by murder took the throne. Just like the Bible's talking about. Hazael comes into power. 
Now, in verse 16, it says, Now the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. Now, I told you it was going to get confusing in the kings. For me, this is when it does so. Verse 16, you have two kings with the same name. In order not to confuse us, they call one Joram and the other Jehoram. They put the H in. Both of them have exactly the same name. One is the king of Israel. One is the king of Judah. <clears throat> one rules in Israel. The other rules in Judah. Uh, now he was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. So he walked according to the northern kingdom. Just as the house of Ahab had done for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Second Corinthians 6.14 says that we ought not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. <coughs> and we see Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, taking as his bride the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel is going to steer Jehoram into being a king like the kings of Israel, in rebellion against God, which means this king is not a good king in the south, and he is going to lead the people to worship Baal. He's going to do the same thing that they were doing in the north. He's going to be a part of doing it in the south. Here's something that we know about him. Jezebel's son-in-law, Jehoram, reigned as a co-regent with Jehoshaphat until the death of his father. So he reigns. you got two kings happening at the same time, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram. The independent reign of Jehoram lasted only eight years. He is influenced by Athaliah, Jezebel's daughter. Jehoram leaves the righteous course, the right way that Jehoshaphat, his father, had gone... And shortly after taking the throne, he kills his six brothers in order to solidify his position. At the same time, he executed many princes. No doubt, this is the reason why in Second Chronicles 21.11, it says that he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication. Jehoram led the southern kingdom down the slope of rebellion against God. And it started because he didn't abide by the Word of God. The Word of God says, Do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. I, don't, I can't even tell you how many times it happens. Today, in the church still. I mean, why should we really listen to that? I mean, so... I just, I really love them, or I really love her, or I think God's going to change their heart, or I think God's going to give me what I need to be able to change him or her. But a whole nation for eight years is led down the road of rebellion against God as a result. And I'm not saying it's the woman's fault. I'm saying it's a man who would not be obedient to what God's word said. He wouldn't be obedient. Are we being obedient to the revealed word of God in our life? Because if we're not, 
You are not headed to a place of peace and happiness. And life is going to be fraught with bumps and bruises and battles and wars because the spirit inside of you is going to do battle with the flesh. And it's going to happen every day, every moment, all the time. And because you won't surrender the position of the flesh and make the choice to mortify the desires of the flesh, that's going to be the focus of your battle. And Satan wins because you won't be effective in the kingdom of God because you have not yet stepped out and decided to follow him. You're too busy having to do the battle within yourself, within the kingdom in your heart, about unwillingness to say, you know what? I'm willing to do what God's asking me to do. To live my life the way God's asking me to live my life. To surrender the things God's asking me to surrender. In verse 19 it says that the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of servant David. The judgment against Judah, I think it's close to 150 years later than the judgment of the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom's going to get judged and go into a bondage to Assyria. Southern kingdom, about 150 years later, is going to get judged and go into bondage in Babylon. Both are going to get judged. One's going to be a little bit later. And God doesn't wipe them out because of the promise he made to David. In his days, Jehoram's days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made themselves a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zaire and all his chariots with him. And they rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him. And the captain of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and Libna revolted at that time. So the, the people that they held within their kingdom are now revolting. They're going their own different ways, setting up their own kings. They're losing their ability to rule. They're losing their ability to take care of themselves. Listen, according to Second Chronicles 21, Elijah wrote a letter to Jehoram. He wrote a letter to Jehoram. <clears throat> and the prophet said to him four things. One, you are going to be condemned as king for first, rejecting the ways of your father Jehoshaphat and his grandfather Asa, not following in the example of those who had gone before him. Two, for walking in the ways of the kings of Israel because you're going into Baal worship. You're becoming idolaters. Three, for leading your people to prostitute themselves in idolatry. And four, for slaying your brothers who were better than you. So wherever Jehoram goes, he loses. He can't hold Edom. He can't hold together the kingdom. Things start to crumble. He's not able to keep the pieces of the kingdom together because he is not being obedient to what God is doing. To what God's revealed word is, has come into his life. He's not willing... To, to follow in obedience so he does not have victory. He doesn't have victory over his enemies. It says in verse 23, The rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Joram rules for eight years and then he dies. So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried and his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So Ahaziah the son of Joram, or Jehoram, and Judah, who is, whose mother is the daughter of Jezebel. 
He comes and reigns. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. So the Joram, the guy who has the same name, in the northern kingdom he's still ruling, Joram. Okay, that's the uncle of Ahaziah. Ahaziah begins to rule in the south. So you have Ahaziah in the south, Joram in the north. It says, uh, And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So one choice, one man's sin, disobedient to the word, leads to their son following the same example as a result having the, the family that's a part of this son, the family of Jezebel and Ahab and their children. So it leads uh, Ahaziah into rebellion against God as well. It says, Then King Joram went back to Jezreel. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 28. Then he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel. You remember Haziel, right? That's the guy who just took over for king in Syria. Remember, he held the, 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 the thick cloth of water over the guy's... And he died, and then he becomes king. So they go to war against Hazael. And God's using all these things to bring God's judgment against the family of Ahab and the Baal worship that's been taking place in the northern kingdom. So Hazael goes to war, and Joram, a child of Ahab, and Ahaziah, the grandson of Ahab, they're there fighting together in the north and south kingdom against Hazael. Now they're not going to be effective against Hazael, because both kings are living a life in disobedience to the word of God. And the time of God's judgment has come. His long suffering is over. And they find themselves in a difficult place. So the king Joram, he gets hurt. He goes back to Jezreel to recover from his wounds. Uh, which he had fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. So Ahaziah, they go, they, they withdraw because the kings get hurt. Joram goes to Jezreel. And a little while, Ahaziah, the nephew of Joram, the king in the north and the king in the south, he, they go and he visits him in Jezreel. While he's visiting him in Jezreel, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth. Gilead. Now that's where the kings got hurt. Both kings got hurt in Ramoth Gilead. <clears throat> they leave. Haziah is not hurt very bad. Joram is still recovering in Jezreel. Haziah goes to visit his uncle. And they leave Jehu, the general of the armies, in Ramoth Gilead, still fighting with Haziel. And Elisha says to one of the sons of the prophets, Take this flask of oil, because Elijah, there's something else Elijah left unfinished that I'm going to finish. See, God said, anoint Jehu. And it's time for Jehu to be anointed. And for the sword to pass through the land of Israel and purge them of the worship of Baal. So, he says, when you arrive at the place, look for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant and the prophet, 
or of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he arrived, there were captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, commander. Well, Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you. So they arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head, and he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You are to strike down the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door, and he fled. That must have been a little bit trippy, because here comes the prophet. He says he's got a message for Jehu. They go into a private room. He dumps the flask of oil over Jehu's head, says, You're anointed king. The Lord God has said, You're the king. You're his tool of vengeance against Ahab and his family. Lays out the prophecy for him and bails. Takes off. So, the Bible tells us then, that's, that's, it's kind of strange, kind of a strange day. So Jehu comes out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is everything okay? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to him, You know the man and his babble. You know, he's not, he, he's not sure yet what's real, who's for him, who's against him. And they said, No, it's a lie. Tell us now. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me. He said, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each of the men hastened to take his garment and put it under him uh, on the top of the steps, and they blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. So while the king is recovering for the northern kingdom, Jehu is anointed king. He's anointed king, and he's about to go through and clean house. And all the army around him join him. The king's recovering, the other king's visiting him, the kings are away, the army is decided that they're going to follow Jehu. And they're going, to, they're going to make him king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds that the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city and go and tell it to Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel. For Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to see him. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and said, I see a company of men. And Jehoram said, Get a horseman and send to him and meet him and ask him, Is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said to him, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, The messenger went to them, but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman and said to them, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, He went to them and is not coming back either. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. 
Then Joram, the king, says, Make ready. And his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his own chariot, and they went to meet Jehu, and met him on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. You remember Naboth? Naboth was the guy that had the vineyard, and Ahab wanted it, and Naboth wouldn't give it to him. So Je- Jezebel said, I'll get it for you, Ahab. And so she charged him with false charges. They took him out and stoned him, wiped out the family, killed his kids, and took the land. And God, through Elijah, came to Ahab and said, on this piece of, gl- uh, on this piece of land, your blood and the blood of your family is going to pay for this piece of land. When Ahab was killed, and his blood filled up the back of the chariot, they rinsed out the chariot in the field of Naboth. Right now, his son is riding out to meet the instrument of God's judgment, and they find themselves right there in the plot, same plot that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. So, Scripture tells us then, then it says, Joram saw Jehu and he said, Is it peace? So he answered, What peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Now Joram knew. He turned around and he fled and he said to Hazai, Treachery! Hazai! Now Jehu drew his bow full strength and, and shot Jehoram between his arms. The arrow came out of his heart. And he sank down in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, Pick him up and throw him in the tract of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. So when Ahab had done it, Jehu and Bidkar were there with Ahab. When Ahab was a part of stealing this plot of land. And they heard Elijah say, your blood and your son's blood and your children's blood is going to pay for this land. So they throw Jehoram on the plot of land. And it says in verse 26, Surely I saw just yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord. I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him in the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. So, They toss him in the ground there. But when Ahazi, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagan. So Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibliam. And he fled to Megiddo, and there he died. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in the tomb of his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahazi, had become king over Judah. So right now, both kings and both kingdoms are dead. Both kings are, are, are killed. Both kings that were leading their people into idolatry, leading them into disobedience to God's word. But there's still the question of the woman who really was a part of starting it all. So it says that When Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. So she's thinking 
that she might be able to, you know, win over Jehu with her beauty. So she paints up her eyes and looks out the window. Apparently it didn't work. And Jehu entered at the gate and she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? Now that's interesting. Zimri was a fella who decided to take power by killing the king. And he reigned for only seven days. So Jezebel paints herself up. Apparently it's not working. Uh, Jehu, then she shouts out at Jehu, don't forget about Zimri. He killed the, his king and only had a reign of seven days. So Jehu is, is not slowed in his quest. It says, he looked up at the window and he said, who's on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. And he said, throw her out of the tower. Throw her out the window. Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. So I don't want you to get the idea that Jehu was a good guy. Jehu's not a good guy. He's does not going to follow the Lord. He is just a tool of the judgment of God, but he's not... A man of God. The sword of judgment comes through. It cuts down the kings. He's going to tear down the, the worship of Baal. He's going to slaughter people. Hazael's going to slaughter people. People are going to die. And we need to understand this. God has no glory in the destruction of the wicked. But that the wicked would turn from his ways and live. See, that's why God sends his prophets. That's why God, when he showed Elijah those incredible events, it says God wasn't in it. It's not the judgment of God that saves men. The judgment of God condemns men. It's the grace of God that saves. The judgment of God, guarantee 100%, will come Always, God must bring his judgment. But before his judgment falls, he will reach out in grace. He will reach out with the truth of his word. He will reach out and say, turn, turn, turn. But the time will come when man does not turn, that God's judgment will fall. Jezebel right now is on the ground, just a heap of broken body, trampled by horses and thrown out of a tower. Her son, his body torn and bloody, is laying in a field. The blood of his father before him washed in that same field, the field of Naboth, whose sons they had killed and slaughtered so that they could take that field, so they could have it. The judgment has come upon a nation who has turned their back on the Lord. And God is going to wipe that idolatry out by the hand of Jehu. We find ourselves currently in a period of grace. But a time of judgment is coming. And we as the bride of Christ should not look forward to the judgment. 
judgment, that's never where God's eyes are looking forward to. God's looking forward to the wicked man turning and living. Scripture says that God is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power in us. According to the power, we are, you and I, we are his hands of mercy. We are his spirit of grace to a world that is condemned. Jesus said it already. I didn't come to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. I came that the world might be saved. We become his hands and feet for that. We become like the prophet Elijah, like Elisha after him, like the sons of the prophet to take the word and lay it out. Now, we can't save anybody, but our job is to tell. But if we find ourselves unable to be effective because we're not willing to commit ourselves wholly like the widow in the beginning, we're not willing to be obedient if it costs us something then we're ineffective in reaching out with the grace of God. And people are perishing without hearing the word. And God just gave us one job. You and me, he gave us one job. Go into all the world making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the call he gave us. To go and do. We see Jehu, he just goes in and eats. He's, all the slaughter's gone on. And he, he's like, I'm hungry. And he goes and eats. And after he's done eating, he comes out and he says, Hey, you know, we really should bury Jezebel. Now the word of the Lord said, don't bury her, but he's going to bury her. So they come out to bury Jezebel. But they can't find her. Well, not all of her. They find her hands and her head. The dogs ate everything else. And her body and her blood spilled out of that tower into the field of Naboth. Just like God said it would. I will never glory in the day of judgment that is coming. I want to glory in the time of grace that is here now. We have time. It's not over for anybody. But we, the church of God, we, the bride of Christ, have to decide whether we're in or not. And if we're in, we need to turn our back on whatever the sin is that's holding us back or whatever the thing is we think is so good that we can't lay it down for the Lord pitch it to the side and report to the Lord and say, I'm here, a tool of your grace to take your truth to people who don't know you so that man might be saved. That is what an awakening is all about. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time, God, that we could just come together and the opportunity to seek your face. Lord, we pray, God, that you would just open the eyes of our understanding, Lord Jesus, that we might see. Indeed, Lord God, you are calling us to so much more. 
There's so much more of your power, so much more of your love, so much more of, of your grace that can be ministered in and through our lives, Lord, if we're willing to hear your word and say, I'll, I'll just obey what you have revealed to me, what you're asking me to do, the things you're asking me to change, the way you're calling me to turn. And I'm willing to obey. I'm willing to follow. I'm willing to, to spend whatever it costs. Because what I receive is so much better than what I lose. For what we gain in Christ is so much more than what we lost in Adam. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us see that judgment of God will come. We read about it in Revelation 6 through 19. It's a horrible time of judgment against a world that has rejected the opportunity of salvation by the Son of God. But we're not there yet. We're here in the period of grace, in a period of time to reach out and say, turn, live, live, receive the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what God has done. And you will receive far more in him than you will ever lose. God, I pray that you would bring an awakening to us that you would wake us up to serve you, Lord, to do what you're asking us to do. To not just let it be just another day, just another night, just another time where we can gather together. But that you would move forward in your church in power. And help us one life at a time to change our communities and our families and our nation. Lord, I pray that we would answer the call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.